as Ian said at the beginning of the service last week, in our congregation, um, we began a series on Leviticus. Um, not a book of the Bible that you might go most naturally to. And in a sense, that's why we chose it. Um, it's kind of a strange book and it's a strange world. And there's something that really attracts me to the fact that sometimes when you read the Bible, you enter into a weird world. A world that you don't kind of get automatically. And I think the importance of it is this. Because it's too easy to make God and our faith in our image. And every now and again, you need to be reminded that God is not the same as us. That his ways are not the same as ours. That actually God does do strange things. That God can't be boxed in. And also, you need to remember that uh, the way the faith has been expressed and practiced over the years has actually been in historical places, in real places at real times, worked out in real ways. So just to remind you of some of the things I said last week, the video comes in the first five books of the Bible, together called the Torah, together the idea these are the foundational books for the Old Testament people of God. Tells a story of how God picks a people, a story of how he creates a people, a story of how he gives them a picture of what he wants to do for the whole world. Leviticus sits in the middle of that. And if you were one into one thing, what's the one theme in the whole of this book? It would be this. Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be holy. Now, for some of us of a certain age, holiness used to be just a sort of like a list of rules of things you weren't allowed to do. Um, but actually, what the biblical view of holiness is this, is this, is that you are set apart for God's use. And that's why God says to his people, people like you and me, who are living ordinary lives, I want you to be set apart. I want you to put yourselves available for God because God has a plan and a purpose for the whole of his world. And he's looking for people all the time who go, I'm yours. I'm yours. I may be, uh, I may be not fully altogether, but actually, God, I really want my life to count for something. I really want my life to be used by you. And, and in a sense, that's what holiness begins to involve. A people that go, actually, God, I want to be yours. And so the stuff that gets in the way, the stuff that starts to sort of move us out of the being used by God. Let me give you one really simple idea. All that stuff has to go. So let me give you one really simple example. It's almost impossible to be used by God if you insist on living a selfish life. You can't be used by God if actually, deep down, you won't stop going down that natural path to selfishness where it's all about you. So what does it mean to be holy? Well, in that context, it means saying, God, I really, if, if this cat fits, God, I really want to deal with the selfishness that that gets really annoyed when I don't get my own way, that gets really hurt when it's not all about me, that gets really anxious when it's not going my way, when people aren't noticing me. Holiness means, actually, I'm going to deal with that God for the sake of the kingdom because actually, ultimately, I want my life to count for you. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, 
and holy. Well, last week we looked at the sacrifices that bring in. It's kind of interesting that in a book where he's going to be, this book is going to start to to deal with how do you live, how do you practically live. And later in the the weeks to come, we'll look at sex, we'll look at money, we'll look at relationships in society, we'll look at uh, leading lives that make sense in the context of many things that uh, sound very contemporary. But it's interesting that the book starts with sacrifice. Because actually, by definition, if you want to be used by God, who am I? Who are you? And eight chapters drags in this idea. You can be used by God because actually the sacrifices have been made for you. That's the gateway. And then we enter into three chapters that talk about um, the, the priests who are set apart to lead worship. Now, Leviticus and Exodus are really intertwined. And uh, there's a bit in Exodus chapter 29, Exodus is the book that comes before Leviticus, uh, where it says this, For the generations to come, this burnt offering, all that stuff we talked about last week, is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will meet you and speak to you. Just think that for that a bit for a minute. I'm going to meet you, God says, and I'll speak to you. Then... I'll dwell among you. I'll dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I'm the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I'm the Lord their God. There's one, if, I mean, and there aren't just one, but there's many, but if there's one element of the whole biblical story that keeps on echoing all the way through the Bible, it's this, that I will dwell with you. In the Garden of Eden, God dwells with Adam and Eve. And it's their sinfulness that breaks that relationship. Here, the promise is, I'll come to you and I'll dwell with you. When Jesus is born, he's called God Emmanuel. I'll be with you. And the promise in Revelation is, I'll be their God. I'll dwell with you. Our hearts are homesick. That's the truth. Our hearts are homesick. Because we're looking for a home with God. Our hearts are homesick. Because we're looking for a home with God. So, if you have a Bible, and uh, you're within reach of one, can you turn to uh, Leviticus chapter 8? Okay. And uh, this is, um, I'm not going to read all of it because it would take too long. So this is what I'm going to be, this is the outline of the story so you get what's going on in these three chapters. God sets Aaron and his sons apart in chapter 8. In chapter 9, they make an offering, and at the end of that chapter, the Lord answers. In chapter 10, disaster strikes, and chapter 10 then finishes with Aaron being told, you can't leave your post. So that's the story, and I'm going to read bits of that as we go on. So if you've got a Bible, Leviticus chapter 8, verse 5. Moses said to the assembly, oh, by the way, just just to remind you, um, Aaron, the chap that we're going to end up talking about, is Moses' brother. You might just, just see, remind you of that. Moses said to the assembly, this is what the Lord has commanded you be done. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons forward and washed them with water. 
He put the tunic on Aaron, tied the sash around him, clothed him with the robe, put the ephod on him, and he tied the ephod ephod to him by its skillfully woven waistband, so it was fastened on him. He placed the breastplate on him and put the urim and the thummim in the breastpiece. And he placed the turban on Aaron's head and set the gold plate, the sacred diadem, on the front of it, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now there's lots of questions you might want to ask there. What's an ephod? What's a urim and thummim? And what's a diadem? In one sense, I want to say, don't worry at the moment about any of those three things. Just get the absolute spectacular way Aaron's being dressed. An ephod seems to be some sort of breastplate, some sort of covering at the front. Urim and Thummim, they think, was a way of... It seems to be... sounds very strange. But it seems to be sort of like ways that they'd start to discern what God would want. A Urim and Thummim might have been sort of stones even, but the ways they would sense, you know, what should we do next? And they'd pray and they'd sort of see what, how God was leading them. And a diadem is simply a sort of a, a crown. The story goes on. So they've been set apart. They've been dressed well. Oh. In chapter 9, verse 1. On the eighth day, Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. He said to Aaron, take a bull calf for your sin offering and a ram for your burnt offering. Must have been a little ironic for Aaron because Aaron had created a golden calf. And yet here he's being told, bring a bull calf, a living calf, because actually you're going to sacrifice this. Bring the calf, bring the lamb, ram, both without defect, and present them before the Lord. And then say to the Israelites, take a male goat for a sin offering, a calf, a lamb, both a year old and without defect for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for a fellowship offering to sacrifice before the Lord, together with a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. They took the things Moses commanded to the front of the tent of meeting and the entire assembly came near and stood before the Lord and Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded you to do so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Verse 23, just at the end of the chapter. Verse 22. Then Aaron lifted his hands towards the people and blessed them and having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire or strange fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And Aaron remained silent. Verse 6. Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Eliezer and Ithamar, don't let your hair become unkempt. Don't tear your clothes or you'll die and the Lord will be angry with the whole community. But your relatives, all the house of Israel, may mourn for those the Lord has destroyed by fire, your sons and your brothers. Don't leave the entrance to the tent of meeting or you'll die 
because the Lord's anointing oil is on you. So they did as Moses said. Well, what's going on? When you go to a hospital or a walk-in clinic or something and you see someone dressed like that, it gives you the impression that they know what they're doing. The thing you never want to ask any nurse is, or a doctor is, is this the first time you've ever done this? You never ask that question because they might say yes, because actually what you want to believe is the uniform gives you confidence. If you have the unfortunate uh, experience of being before this kind of person, you don't want to know whether he's having a bad day. What you want to believe is that the uniform makes him fair. Or this guy. You want to believe that he's honest. And one of the reasons we have so much uproar when they're not is because actually the uniform ought to be the symbol that you're honest, that we can trust you. And it's the same in the church world. We belong to a tradition in our churches where we don't signify, we don't get dressed up in a certain way. But in this church building where there's another church who worships at different times, the Church of England, the ministers there do get dressed and they are obviously set apart. And one of the things that they say to, to, if you ask them about it, is it's because it's not about me, it's about the uniform. That's why sometimes you wonder, why, why do some Anglican ministers and some Catholic priests speak in what is quite a monotonous tone? And they will tell you, because it's not about my personality. I'm simply here to represent the words. I'm part of the uniform. It's not about who I am. Now, you might have all sorts of things you want to have a conversation about there, but it's the uniform matters. What had happened here is that these men, Aaron and his sons, have been given a uniform. They are the priests, and the priests have been set apart. And I, I want you to remember this idea of the tent of meeting, this tabernacle place. And this is exactly what was going on. The, you've got this sort of tent building, this tabernacle building, that can be quickly taken down because you're moving around a lot. But in the middle of it is the place which is the most holy of holies. And then all the way through it kind of comes to the, the entrance to the tent. And the place, the place the priest works is in the entrance. The, end, the priest doesn't spend all his time in the holy place... And he doesn't spend all the time out in the world. He stands between the two. He's literally a bridge builder between the people and God. He stands there as a bridge. And he's there bringing, as we said last week, all these animals are being received in worship. And if you've tried to read those first chapters of Leviticus... Ian was telling me on Friday, he's been reading through them very faithfully and, um, and has been going, ugh, a lot. What's really worrying is that Ian reads these on his phone while he's driving. Only at traffic lights. I tell you that, just in case you ever see him on the road, you might want to just pull up and park and wait for him to pass. Worship involved bulls and sheep 
birds if you were poor, and flour, cakes. You brought it all in. And the priest, the priest, his job was actually part holy person and part butcher, literally. He was the butcher, cleansing, sorting out the meat, bringing the, the good stuff, bringing it into the holy place, and pouring it on the fire and letting it burn. And it would be messy, but it would smell. Why so much emphasis on sacrifice? You might have read this week or even seen it that Lance Armstrong, the cyclist, has finally said, I cheated. I'm sorry. It's a brilliant image of how we think or how some celebrities think you can say sorry. You don't say sorry to the people you did it to. You don't say sorry to those you cheated. You don't say sorry to those that you took to court. You go on Oprah. And you say to the whole world, yeah, I'm a bad person, but please forgive me. And people are writing a lot about it at the moment and saying, yeah, but it's not enough just to say sorry, is it? It is the tricky thing, isn't it? What can you bring to say, I'm sorry? Well, the Old Testament, they had two things. They said, firstly, you have to make reparation. You have to repair what you've done to other people. But the second thing is, it will be costly. It does involve sacrifice. You can't just rock up to the priest and go, hey, I'm sorry. I'm a bad guy. Sin always costs. And then you have this very strange uh, situation with these two sons who suddenly, out of nowhere, they're offering fire, unauthorized fire. What were they doing? Well, it's kind of one of these frustrating bits of the Bible because it didn't tell you what they did wrong. But it's interesting that nobody in that passage goes, well, what did they do wrong? They're all just going, wow. So this is what God's like. You can't mess with God. Unauthorized fire. Some people think maybe they uh, were using wrong ingredients in their sacrificial uh, work. Maybe they were doing it at wrong times. And later on in that chapter, uh, Moses tells the priest, don't get drunk. Don't be drinking alcohol. Because actually, you can't, you can't do this sort of work when your wits are not around you. And some people actually wonder whether what was happening was these, these sons had just been drinking and taking it far too lightly. And Aaron sees his sons die. And Moses says to him, this is what I meant when I said to you that the holiness of God really counts. And Aaron stays silent. And Aaron's told, you can't desert your post. You can't mourn. You can't leave. You still have to minister. And Aaron learns, and his two brothers learn, you don't mess with God. It's life and death. 
So handle with care. And for those of you that are easily tempted to think, ah, oh, yeah, but that's Old Testament. The God of the New Testament, he's really nice. You don't have to read very far in the book of Acts, do you? And you see two people, Ananias and Sapphira, who are wanting to make a name for themselves amongst their own little community. And uh, at a time when some people are coming and selling their lands, and they're bringing their lands, Barnabas is bringing their lands and bringing it to the apostles and saying, look, I've sold my stuff, just use the money for the poor. Ananias and Sapphira, they do exactly the same, but they keep some back, but they bring it and say, we've sold and, and we brought it all. Can you use that too? And uh, Peter, one of the apostles, sees through them and goes, you're lying, you're lying. And you're not lying towards the community, you're lying to God. And Ananias drops dead in church. And they carry him out. And as they carry him out, Sapphira comes in and says, who's that? He's your husband. He's dead. Because he lied and so did you. She drops down dead. This is no church growth strategy. <laughs> In Hebrews, the book of the New Testament that most sort of like riffs on Leviticus and, and looks at Leviticus and thinks about it is the hardest book of the New Testament sometimes for us. Because it says things like this, that if you have tasted, if you have received, and you go back, there's nowhere to go. You can't come back. You've blocked off the way of sacrifice. You've blocked off the way of Jesus. Be careful. It's almost like God's dangerous. And if there's one thing I'd want to remind myself is this, that God is dangerous. Because it's not that we want to reduce Christianity, but we want to make it safe. We want to make it on our terms. We want to make God about us. We want to make God a, a gentle God, uh, an old man, grandfatherly type God. And you can do that, but you'll find it very difficult to do if you read the Bible. Because suddenly you're in this new world where holiness really matters and God really matters. And that, folks, is why the cross is so central. Because the wrath of God is poured out and his son, God himself, in himself, takes on the wrath of God and eats it up. It's like, it's like Jesus threw himself on the gear that would crush him in order to stop the machine of death. I will be crushed, Jesus says, because actually this is so serious stuff. Well, so what's this mean for us? Well, let me just take you to the New Testament and say three things. In 1 Peter, Peter writes and says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possessions, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 
You, Peter says, using all that Old Testament language of Aaron, of priests, of people who were bridge builders, of people who stood in between the gap between a holy God and the rest of the people, he says, that's what you are now. And that's what you are. You are the bridge person. For the rest of the world who do not know the glories of God, you who have encountered the holy God stand in the entrance door going, actually, I'll be part of the bridge between a world and a holy God. You are priests. One of the questions we often want to ask is, so what do I do? What do you want me to do, God? And we understand why we ask those sort of questions, because it's like, oh God, what should I do? What should I do next? And particularly if you're at certain points of your life, oh God, what, what do you want me to do? But the story of the New Testament is always this, that you are priest. That is your vocation. You're the person who stands, you're the bridge builder who stands between a holy God and the rest of the world. And everything else will change about you, so the real question is, who do you want me to be for you? Your vocation is not what you do, your vocation is who you are. Your situations may change, but actually who you are need not change, because actually God wants to use you for his world. So whether you're in an office, whether you're in a school, whether you're uh, retired, whether you're in a college, whether you're on a workshop floor, it doesn't matter where you find yourself most of the days. You are the bridge person, priests declaring the glory of God. I realise that's not a very good slide, but I realised it too late. It's not a disembodied hand. <laughs> it's supposed to be a hand of someone who's just sort of pledging loyalty. This is where I want to leave us. What does God ask of you this morning? Yeah, like that. God asks of you for loyalty that says, I won't move. I won't leave the post. I'll stay loyal. There's a Greek story that I do enjoy and love. It's about a man called Ulysses who was uh, going up the, the coast in the Greek area around Greece and Italy. And uh, he's going along the coast and he hears the story of these siren, it's like women who are sirens and they have these ethereal voices and they call to ships. And they sound beautiful. And of course, as you give in to the voices, you take your ship towards the beautiful voices and you wreck your ship and you all drown. And Ulysses says to his uh, co-sailors, I want you to, um, to tie me to the mast. And I want you to plug my ears because I'm going to go, and as I hear these voices, I will want to go towards them. And I will ask you to untie me, and I don't want you to untie me. Because if I do, we'll all be shipwrecked. I wonder whether there's a sense of what one of the things that we, the best things we could do for one another is to say, I'm going to keep you firm to the commitment you made. 
I'm going to keep you loyal to the vow you made to follow Jesus. Because there will be days when you will want to give up. There will be days when tragedies happen in your own lives and you will say, surely God, that gives me permission to give up. Nobody in this room would have any, we wouldn't think it bad of Aaron at all if Aaron had said, do you mind if I just step back for a while? My two sons have died. And Moses says, no, you don't, you don't walk. Because your ministry is too important. Who you are is too important. For the sake of the people, you can't back off. For the sake of the world, you can't give up. Oh God, let me stay loyal. It's kind of interesting, in the prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples, part of the prayer is, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. Let me stay walking, God. Let me stay loyal. Let me stay on the path. Because the disciples are the bridge for the world. Because it's easy for each one of us to say, maybe we'll just give up. Because the promise is that God will be with his people. Because the promise is that God will use you.